Section 13 of The Plain Speaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Plain Speaker. Opinions on Books, Men, and Things. By William Hazlitt. Section 13. On Sitting for One's Picture. There is a pleasure in sitting for one's picture, which many persons are not aware of. People are coy on the subject at first, coquette with it, and pretend not to like it, as is the case with other venial indulgences, but they soon get over their scruples and become resigned to their fate. There is a conscious vanity in it, and vanity is the aurora potabile in all our pleasures, the true elixir of human life. The sitter at first affects an air of indifference, throws himself into a slovenly or awkward position, like a clown when he goes a-courting for the first time, but gradually recovers himself, attempts an attitude, and calls up his best looks, the moment he receives intimation that there is something about him that will do for a picture. The beggar in the street is proud to have his picture painted, and would almost sit for nothing. The finest lady in the land is as fond of sitting to a favorite artist, as of seating herself before her looking-glass, and the more so, as the glass in this case is sensible of her charms, and does all it can to fix or heighten them. Kings lay aside their crowns to sit for their portraits, and poets their laurels to sit for their busts. I am sure my father had as little vanity and as little love for the art as most persons, yet when he had sat to me a few times, now some twenty years ago, he grew evidently uneasy when it was a fine day, that is, when the sun shone into the room, so that we could not paint and when it became cloudy, he began to bustle about, and asked me if I was not getting ready. Poor old room! Does the sun still shine into thee, or does hope fling its colors round thy walls, gaudier than the rainbow? No, never. While thy oak panels endure, will they enclose such fine movements of the brain as pass through mine, when the fresh hues of nature gleamed from the canvas, and my heart silently breathed the names of Rembrandt and Correggio. Between my father's love of sitting and mine of painting, we hit upon a tolerable likeness at last. But the picture is cracked and gone, and McGilp, that bane of the English school, has destroyed as fine an old nonconformist head as one could hope to see in these degenerate times. The fact is, that having one's picture painted is like the creation of another self, and that is an idea of the repetition or reduplication of which no man is ever tired to the thousandth reflection. It has been said that lovers are never tired of each other's company, because they are always talking of themselves. This seems to be the bond of connection, a delicate one it is, between the painter and the sitter. They are always thinking and talking of the same thing, of the picture, in which their self-love finds an equal counterpart. There is always something to be done, or to be altered, that touches that sensitive chord, this feature was not exactly hit off. Something is wanting to the nose or to the eyebrows. It may perhaps be as well to leave out this mark or that blemish. If it were possible to recall an expression that was remarked a short time before, it would be an indesirable advantage to the picture. A squint or a pimple on the face handsomely avoided may be a link of attachment ever after. He is no mean friend who conceals from ourselves, or only gently indicates, our obvious defects to the world. The sitter, by his repeated, minute, fidgety inquiries about himself, 
may be supposed to take an indirect and laudable method of arriving at self-knowledge. And the artist, in self-defense, is obliged to cultivate a scrupulous tenderness towards the feelings of his sitter, lest he should appear in the character of a spy upon him. I do not conceive there is a stronger call upon secret gratitude than the having made a favorable likeness of any one, nor a surer ground of jealousy and dislike than the having failed in the attempt. A satire or a lampoon in writing is bad enough, but here we look doubly foolish, for we are ourselves parties to the plot, and have been at considerable pains to give evidence against ourselves. I have never had a plaster cast taken of myself. In truth, I rather shrink from the experiment, for I know I should be very much mortified if it did not turn out well, and I should never forgive the unfortunate artist who had lent his assistance to prove that I looked like a blockhead. The late Mr. Opie used to remark that the sensible people made the best sitters, and I inclined to his opinion, especially as I myself am an excellent sitter. Indeed, it seems to me a piece of more impertinence not to sit as still as one can in these circumstances. I put the best face I can upon the matter, as well out of respect to the artist as to myself. I appear on my trial in the court of physiognomy, and am as anxious to make good a certain idea I have of myself, as if I were playing a part on a stage. I have no notion how people go to sleep who are sitting for their pictures. It is an evident sign of want of thought and of internal resources. There are some individuals, all whose ideas are in their hands and feet. Make them sit still, and you put a stop to the machine altogether. The volatile spirit of quicksilver in them turns to a caput mortuum, Children are particularly sensible of this constraint from their thoughtlessness and liveliness. It is the next thing with them to wearing the fool's cap at school. Yet they are proud of having their pictures taken, ask when they are to sit again, and are mightily pleased when they are done. Charles I's children seem to have been good sitters, and the great dog sits like a Lord Chancellor. The second time a person sits, and the view of the features is determined, the head seems fastened in an imaginary vice, and he can hardly tell what to make of his situation. He is continually overstepping the bounds of duty, and is tied down to certain lines and limits chalked out upon the canvas, to him invisible or dimly seen, on the throne where he is exalted. The painter has now a difficult task to manage, to throw in his gentle admonitions, a little more this way, sir, or, you bend rather too forward, madam, and ought to have a delicate white hand, that he may venture to adjust a straggling lock of hair, or by giving a slight turn to the head, cooperate in the practical attainment of a position. These are the trickish and tiresome places of the work, before much progress is made, where the sitter grows peevish and abstracted, and the painter more anxious and particular than he was the day before. Now is the time to fling in a few adroit compliments, or to introduce general topics of conversation. The artist ought to be a well-informed and agreeable man, able to expatiate on his art, and abounding in lively and characteristic anecdotes. Yet he ought not to talk too much, or to grow too animated, or the picture's apt to stand still, and the sitter to be aware of it. Accordingly, the best talkers in the profession have not always been the most successful portrait painters. For this purpose, it is desirable to bring a friend, who may relieve guard, or fill up the pauses of conversation occasioned by the necessary attention of the painter to his business, 
and by the involuntary reveries of the sitter on what his own likeness will bring forth. Or a book, a newspaper, or a portfolio of prints may serve to amuse the time. When the sitter's face begins to flag, the artist may then properly start a fresh topic of discourse, and while his attention is fixed on the graces called out by the varying interest of the subject, and the model anticipates, pleased and smiling, they are being transferred every moment to the canvas, nothing is wanting to improve and carry to its height the amicable understanding and mutual satisfaction and good will subsisting between these two persons so happily occupied with each other. Sir Joshua must have had a fine time of it with his sitters. Lords, ladies, generals, authors, opera singers, musicians, the learned and the polite, besieged his doors and found an unfailing welcome. What a rustling of silks! What a fluttering of flounces and brocades! What a cloud of powder and perfumes! What a flow of periwigs! What an exchange of civilities and of titles! What a recognition of old friendships! and an introduction of new acquaintances and sitters. I must, I think, be allowed that this is the only mode in which genius can form a legitimate union with wealth and fashion. There is a secret and sufficient tie in interest and vanity. Abstract topics of wit or learning do not furnish a connecting link. But the painter, the sculptor, come in close contact with the persons of the great. The lady of quality, the courtier, and the artist, meet and shake hands on this common ground. The latter exercises a sort of natural jurisdiction and dictatorial power over the pretensions of the first to external beauty and accomplishment, which produces a mild sense of tone and equality, and the opulent sitter pays the taker of flattering likenesses handsomely for his trouble, which does not lessen the sympathy between them. There is even a satisfaction in paying down a high price for a picture. It seems as if one's head was worth something. During the first sitting, Sir Joshua did little but chat with the new candidate for the frame of the portraiture, try an attitude, or remark an expression. His object was to gain time, by not being in haste to commit himself, until he was master of the subject before him. No one ever dropped in but the friends and acquaintances of the sitter. It was a rule with Sir Joshua that from the moment the latter entered, he was at home, the room belonged to him. But what secret whisperings would there be among these, what confidential, inaudible communications? It must be a refreshing moment when the cake and wine had been handed round, and the artist began again. He, as it were, by this act of hospitality, assumed a new character, and acquired a double claim to confidence and respect. In the meantime, the sitter would perhaps glance his eye round the room, and see a titan, or a van dyke, hanging in one corner, with a transient feeling of scepticism whether he should make such a picture. How the ladies of quality and fashion must bless themselves for being made to look like Dr. Johnson or Goldsmith! How proud the first of these would be, how happy the last, to fill the same armchair where the Burnburys and Hornicks had sat! How superior the painter would feel to them all! By happy alchemy of mind, he brought out all their good qualities and reconciled their defects, gave an air of studious case to his learned friends, or lighted up the face of folly and fashion with intelligence and graceful smiles. Those portraits, however, that were most admired at the time, do not retain their preeminence now. The thought remains upon the brow, while the color has faded from the cheek, or the dress grown obsolete, and, after all, Sir Joshua's best pictures are those of his worst sitters, his children. 
They suited best with his unfinished style, and are like the infancy of the art itself, happy, bold, and careless. Sir Joshua formed the circle of his private friends from the elite of his sitters, and Van Dyke was, it appears, on the same footing with his. When any of those noble or distinguished persons whom he has immortalized with his pencil were sitting to him, he used to ask them to dinner, and afterwards it was their custom to return to the picture again, so that it is said that many of his finest portraits were done in this manner, ere the colors were yet dry, in the course of a single day. Oh, ephemeral works to last for ever! Van Dyck married a daughter of Earl Gower, of whom there is a very beautiful picture. She was the Enone, and he his own Paris. A painter of the name of Astley married a Lady Blank, who sat to him for her picture. He was a wretched hand, but a fine person of a man, and a great coxcomb, and on his strutting up and down before the portrait when it was done with a prodigious air of satisfaction, she observed, if he was so pleased with a copy, he might have the original. This Astley was a person of magnificent habits and a sumptuous taste in living, and is the same of whom the anecdote is recorded, that when some English students walking out near Rome were compelled by the heat to strip off their coats, Astley displayed a waistcoat with a huge waterfall streaming down the back of it, which was a piece of one of his own canvases that he had converted to this purpose. Sir Joshua fell in love with one of his fair sitters, a young and beautiful girl, who ran out one day in a great panic and confusion, hid her face in her companion's lap who was reading in an outer room, and said, Sir Joshua had made her an offer. This circumstance perhaps deserves mentioning the more, because there is a general idea that Sir Joshua Reynolds was a confirmed old bachelor. Goldsmith conceived a fruitless attachment to the same person, and addressed some passionate letters to her. Alas, it is the fate of genius to admire and celebrate beauty, but not to enjoy it. It is a fate, perhaps, not without its compensations. Had Petrarch gained his Laura for a wife, would he have written sonnets all his life? This distinguished beauty is still living, and handsomer than Sir Joshua's picture of her when a girl, and inveighs against the freedom of Lord Byron's pen with all the charming prudery of the last age. The relation between the portrait-painter and his amiable sitters is one of established custom, but it is also one of metaphysical nicety, and is a running double entendre. The fixing of an inquisitive gaze on beauty, the heightening of momentary grace, the dwelling on the heaven of an eye, the losing oneself in the dimple of a chin, is a dangerous employment. The painter may chance to slide into the lover. The lover can hardly turn painter. The eye indeed grows critical, the hand is busy, but are the senses unmoved? We are employed to transfer living charms to an inanimate surface, but they may sink into the heart by the same way, and the nerveless hand be unable to carry its luscious burden any farther. St. Prue wonders at the rash mortal who has dared to trace the features of his Julia, and accuses him of insensibility without reason. Perhaps he, too, had an enthusiasm and pleasures of his own. Mr. Burke, in his Sublime and Beautiful, has left a description of what he terms the most beautiful object in nature, the neck of a lovely and innocent female, which is written very much of, as if he had himself formerly painted this object, and sacrificed at this formidable shrine. There is no doubt that the perception of beauty becomes more exquisite, till the sense aches at it, by being studied and refined upon as an object of art. It is at the same time fortunately neutralized by this means, 
or the painter would run mad. It is converted into an abstraction, an ideal thing, into something intermediate between nature and art, hovering between a living substance and a senseless shadow. The health and spirit that but now breathe from a speaking face, the next moment breathe with almost equal effect from a dull piece of canvas, and thus distract attention. The eye sparkles, the lips are moist there too, and if we can fancy the picture alive, the face in its turn radiates into a picture, a mere object of sight. We take rapturous possession with one sense, the eye, but the artist's pencil acts as a non-conductor to the grosser desires. Besides, the sense of duty, of propriety, interferes. It is not the question at issue. We have other work on our hands, and enough to do. Love is the product of ease and idleness, but the painter has an anxious, feverish, never-ending task, to rival the beauty to which he dare not aspire even in thought or in a dream of bliss. Paints and brushes are not armorous tools of light-winged Cupid. A rising sigh evaporates in the aroma of some fine oil-color or varnish. A kindling blush is transfixed in a bed of vermilion on the palette. A blue vein meandering in a white wrist invites the hand to touch it, but it is better to proceed and not spoil the picture. The ambiguity becomes more striking in painting from the naked figure. If the wonder occasioned by the object is greater, so is the despair of rivaling what we see. The sense of responsibility increases with the hope of creating an artificial splendor to match the real one. The display of unexpected charms foils our vanity and mortifies passion. The painting, a Diana and Nymphs, is like plunging into a cold bath of desire. To make a statue of Venus transforms the sculptor himself to stone. The snow on the lap of beauty freezes the soul. The heedless, unsuspecting license of foreign manners gives the artist abroad an advantage over ours at home. Sir Joshua Reynolds painted only the head of Iphigene, from a beautiful woman of quality. Canova had innocent girls to sit for him for his graces. The Princess Borghese, whose symmetry of form was admirable, sat to him for a model, which he considered as his masterpiece and the perfection of the female form and when asked if she did not feel uncomfortable while it was taking, she replied with great indifference, No, it was not cold. I have but one other word to add on this part of the subject. If having to paint a delicate and modest female is a temptation to gallantry, on the other hand, the sitting to a lady for one's picture is a still more trying situation, and amounts, almost of itself, to a declaration of love. Landscape painting is free from these tormenting dilemmas and embarrassments. It is full of the feeling of pastoral simplicity and ease, as portrait painting is of personal vanity and egoism. Away, then, with these encumbrances to the true liberty of thought, the sitter's chair, the bag-wig and sword, the drapery, the lay figure, and let us to some retired spot in the country, take out our portfolio, plant our easel, and begin." we are all at once shrouded from observation. The world forgetting, by the world forgot. We enjoy the cool shade, with solitude and silence, or hear the dashing waterfall, or stock-dove plain amid the forest deep, that drowsy rustics to the sighing gale. It seems almost a shame to do anything, we are so well content without it. But the eye is restless, and we must have something to show when we get home. We set to work, and failure or success prompts us to go on. We take up the pencil. 
or lay it down again, as we please. We muse or paint, as objects strike our senses or our reflection. The perfect leisure we feel turns labor to a luxury. We try to imitate the gray color of a rock or of the bark of a tree. The breeze wafted from its broad foliage gives us fresh spirits to proceed. We dip our pencil in the sky, or ask the white clouds sailing over its bosom to sit for their pictures. We are in no hurry, and have the day before us. Or else, escaping from the close embowered scene, we catch fading distances on airy downs, and seize on golden sunsets, with the fleecy flocks glittering in the evening ray, after a shower of rain has fallen. Or from Norwood's ridgy heights, survey the snake-like Thames, or its smoke-crowned capital. Think of its crimes, its cares, its pain, then shield us in the woods again. No one thinks of disturbing a landscape painter at his task. He seems a kind of magician, the privileged genius of the place. Wherever a Claude, a Wilson, has introduced his own portrait in the foreground of a picture, we look at it with interest, however ill it may be done, feeling that it is the portrait of one who was quite happy at the time, and how glad we should be to change places with him. Mr. Burke has brought in a striking episode in one of his latter works in allusion to Sir Joshua's portrait of Lord Keppel, with those of some other friends painted in their better days. The portrait is indeed a fine one, worthy of the artist and the critic, and perhaps recalls Lord Keppel's memory oftener than any other circumstance at present. Footnote. No man lives too long, who lives to do with spirit, and suffer with resignation, what providence pleases to command or inflict. But indeed they are sharp incommodities which beset old age. It was but the other day, that in putting in order some things which had been brought here on my taking leave of London for ever, I looked over a number of fine portraits, most of them of persons now dead, but whose society, in my better days, made this a proud and happy place. Amongst these was a picture of Lord Keppel. It was painted by an artist worthy of the subject, the excellent friend of that excellent man from their earliest youth, and a common friend of both of us, with whom we lived for many years without a moment of coldness, or peevishness, of jealousy, or of jar, to the day of our final separation. I ever looked on Lord Keppel as one of the greatest and best men of his age, and I loved and cultivated him accordingly. He was much in my heart, and I believe I was in his to the very last beat. It was after his trial at Portsmouth that he gave me this picture. With what zeal and anxious affection I attended him through that agony of glory! What part, my son, in early flush and enthusiasm of his virtue, and the pious passion with which he attached himself to all my connections, with what prodigality we both squandered ourselves in courting almost every sort of enmity for his sake, I believe he felt, just as I should have felt, such friendship on such an occasion. Letter to a Noble Lord, page 29, second edition, printed for T. Williams. I have given this passage entire here because I wish to be informed, if I could, what is the construction of the last sentence of it. It has puzzled me all my life. One difficulty might be got over by making a pause after, I believe he felt, and leaving out the comma between have felt and such friendship. That is, the meaning would be, I believe he felt with what zeal and anxious affection, and etc., just as I should have felt such friendship on such an occasion. But then, again, what is to become of the 
What part, my son, and etc.? With what does this connect? Or to what verb is my son the nominative case, or by what verb is what part governed? I should really be glad if, from any manuscript, printed copy, or marginal correction, this point could be cleared up, and so fine a passage resolved, by any possible ellipsis, into ordinary grammar. End of footnote. Portrait painting is in truth a sort of cement of friendship, and a clue to history. That blockhead, Mr. Crocker, of the Admiralty, the other day blundered upon some observations of mine relating to this subject, and made the house stare by asserting that portrait painting was history or history portrait, as it happened, but went on to add that those gentlemen who had seen the ancient portraits lately exhibited in Pall Mall must have been satisfied that they were strictly historical, which showed that he knew nothing at all of the matter, and merely talked by rote. There was nothing historical in the generality of those portraits, except that they were portraits of people mentioned in history. There was no more the spirit of history in them, which is a passion, or action, than in their dresses. But this is the way in which that person, by his pettifogging habits and literal understanding, always mistakes a verbal truism for sense, and a misnomer for wit. I was going to observe that I think aiding the recollection of our family and friends in our absence may be a frequent and strong inducement to sitting for our pictures, but that I believe the love of posthumous fame, or of continuing our memories after we are dead, has very little to do with it. And one reason I should give for that opinion is this, that we are not naturally very prone to dwell with pleasure on anything that may happen in relation to us after we are dead, because we are not fond of thinking of death at all. We shrink equally from the prospect of that fatal event, or from any speculation on its consequences. The surviving ourselves in our pictures is but a poor compensation. It is rather adding mockery to a calamity. The perpetuating of our names in the wide page of history, or to a remote posterity, is a vague calculation, that may take out the immediate sting of mortality, whereas we ourselves may hope to the last, by a fortunate extension of the term of human life, almost as long as an ordinary portrait. And the wounds of lacerated friendship it heals must be still green, and our ashes scarcely cold. I think, therefore, that the looking forward to this mode of keeping alive the memory of what we were, by lifeless hues and discoloured features, is not among the most approved consolations of human life, or favourite dalliances of the imagination. Yet I own, I should like some part of me, as the hair or even nails, to be preserved entire, or I should have no objection to lie like Whitfield in a state of petrification. This smacks of the bodily reality, at least, acts like a deception to the spectator, and breaks the fall from this sensible, warm motion to a kneaded clod, from that to nothing, even to the person himself. I suspect that the idea of posthumous fame which has so unwelcome a condition annexed to it, loses its general relish as we advance in life, and that it is only while we are young that we pamper our imaginations with this bait, with a sort of impunity. The reversion of immortality is then so distant that we may talk of it without much fear of entering upon immediate possession. Death is itself a fable, a sound that dies upon our lips and the only certainty seems the only impossibility. Fame, at that romantic period, is the first thing in our mouths, and death the last in our thoughts. 
End of section 13